Yeah, there's the square. Good evening, everyone. We we'll, uh, might have a little, you know, challenge or two with our recorder tonight, uh, but we're going to try to get through it. Uh, they like these messages to be recorded because they do go out to a number number of people, and uh, so, you know, just be patient with Kay and I, and we'll get there somehow, some way. We've got a good report on Bill. Um, so happy for that. Very, I know everyone rejoices in that. You know, as we get older, and we don't like to use that term a lot, but we do get older. Uh, <laughs> and But we have a number of health issues that are just a part of an um, aging process, and they come in different ways. And I think if we, uh, we express a great deal of love and concern uh, for uh, our home group members and uh, individuals that we know that are so close to us. But I think one of the most honorable things we can do is to continue to lift them up. And I know many times uh, I've been the individual that you've lifted up and I, I want you to know how much that means to me and how much I appreciate it and I thank you. And I don't take it for granted. And I think I'm speaking for everyone. You know, praying for someone, um, and especially loved ones, but praying for them, it's really a blessing and an honor to do, uh, to uh, stand uh, for them and stand in the gap for them. So uh, as we begin our uh, meeting tonight, our get-together, I want to thank John and Carol for opening up their home. Uh, they're always so gracious. And I know it's difficult after a full day working and being on your feet and uh, John doesn't always do everything you tell him to do. So, uh, he does more uh, than I tell him. <laughs> uh, so thank you guys for opening up your home. It's always so comfortable. Um, we're going to take our prayer request and um, if outside of uh, Bill, uh, anyone that we might need to pray for. And I'm going to turn this off while we pray. Okay. Well, you may not have known that I would be teaching tonight. <laughs> I mean, my session starts, and uh, <clears throat> I hope you feel the same way when it's over. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about a subject tonight that's probably the least pleasant to talk about. But it's a subject we must talk about. And Tom really has already introduced it. You'll pick up on it very, very quickly. Because I want to talk about eternity. But specifically, I want to talk about hell. And there's a number of reasons why I've chosen to talk about this message. First of all, I have a very dear 
pastoral friend. In fact, an individual I encouraged to go into ministry back in 1970. And he's been in ministry since then. And we're dear friends. He's in Oklahoma City. And I was talking to him. He went to one of the same seminaries that I did. And in our visitation, he said, you know, about five years after our classes, well, it's estimated, he said by his numbers, because I would have no idea, that about 70% of those graduates no longer believe in hell. And I said, what? And he went on to give me the various reasons as to why they don't. Now, I'm going to share some things with you which verifies that statement. I recently read an article by a well-known pastor, a writer, a church leader. I doubt if you know him, but his name is Matthew J. DiStefano. And the article that he wrote the title of it was The Absurdity of Hell. And he explained in this article that all doctrines of eternal hell are created equal, though all are equally absurd. He accused the early church fathers like Tertullian and others, his words, swimming in the same stream of calloused theological BS. Now, this is in contrast to a worldwide evangelist that a man of God, I listened to him, and you perhaps do not know of him, but his name is Paul Washer. And he was very pointed and direct. In contrast to this statement, he was not responding to it, but he said this, the moment that you take your first step through the gates of hell, the only thing that you will hear is all of creation standing to its feet and applauding and praising God because God has rid the earth of you. That's just how not good you are. That's quite a contrast, isn't it? Hell was not created for you. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25.41 But because men decided to follow Satan, the days of Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, and then Judah and Israel, hell had to be enlarged, according to Isaiah 5 and verse 14. It was a tough message for Jesus to preach. He preached about hell about 33 times if I counted them correctly. He talked more about hell than he did about heaven. And he did so because he did not want anyone to go there. Very simply stated in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus had a three-year ministry and yet he spoke on hell 33 times. That's an average of about 11 times a year. So that'd be about once a month. But in most churches, there's not been a single mention of hell in the past five or ten years. Don't think so? Just go to any church's library of sermons. They're 
you know, they post that on the internet. Pull it up for yourself. Go through their library of sermons and see how many sermons you find on hell. Because I'm telling you, you're likely not going to find a one. And yet the Bible talks about hell 167 times. And yet there are many today that deny, that distance, that doubt that there's even such a place. I follow religious polling pretty close because we live out here in West Texas and what we see here is not what is pretty evident across all across America. So I just look to religious polling. And depending on how the question was asked, upwards of 60% of all Protestant and evangelicals from leading churches all across America do not believe in a literal hell, which supports what my dear friend said. Many well-known religious websites, they deny even teaching on a biblical hell. And that's one of the reasons that provoked this lesson, because I've read so many, and it's so shocking. Are you kidding me? You see, to deny the existence of hell is to deny Jesus Christ. And it is to deny the Bible as the Word of God. The Bible unequivocally declares in Romans 1.18 that God's holy wrath and indignation are revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who in their wickedness they repress and hinder the truth and they make it inoperative. That's not talking about going to time out. There are four groups that deny that there is a hell. The first group are atheists. They don't believe in hell because, well, they just don't believe in God. You know, they believe that we evolved, and once we die, we cease to exist. Atheists don't believe in God. Well, to be honest with you, I don't believe in atheists. You say, well, why so? Well, to me, it's scientifically impossible to be an atheist. Because atheists make the statement, there is no God. How do you know there is no God? It would take all knowledge to know that there is no God. And scientists tell us that we only have, at best, maybe 2% of all knowledge. And on a Mensa level of IQ, we still come up about 98% short. See, you cannot be an atheist. You can be an agnostic. They just deny that there is a God and they don't believe in hell. Then there's the annihilationist. And annihilationists quote Matthew 10 and verse 28. This is their one passage they stake all of their theology on. They, it says, Fear not them which can kill the body, but are also able to kill the soul but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both the body and the soul in hell. So they believe that the first death is the death of the body, and the second death is annihilation. That would be death of the soul. So destroy to destroy both the body and the soul to them, well, that's annihilation. So they build this entire interpretation on one verse, 
in their teaching and then they ignore the other 166 mentions of hell throughout Scripture. Then number three, there's the reconciliationist. The reconciliationists believe, ultimately believe, that everyone will be reconciled to God. They believe that people will only go to hell depending upon how bad you were. And this has been a predominant view of Judaism. Judaism and others believe that really hell is a, like a purifying place. It's a process following death up to a period of time not to exceed 12 months. Rarely will any human being experience beyond 11 months. So when you think about that, then hell actually becomes a place of atonement. They're looking to hell to atone you for your sins rather than the blood of the cross. And as a result, they believe that even Satan will ultimately be reconciled to God. They insist that the majority of Christians embraced universal reconciliation for the first 500 years of the early church history. But what they failed to understand was that Judaism was not concerned with eternal death. Nearly all Christians came out of paganism and heathenism, their beliefs and their practices. Eternal life was not a new concept, and eternal judgment and separation from God was not widely understood. Then the fourth group is the Universalist, and the Universalists have become the most popular. They're very popular among church people today. Their reasoning is this. You hear it all the time. How could a loving God send someone to hell? They claim that when Jesus died, He paid the price for everyone's sins. He did. But you still have a choice. They overlook that you have to accept that the receipt of your debt has been paid in full. That's the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. And they must not have been present in class in day, on the day when Jesus said, Enter in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in therein. But straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Matthew seven thirteen and 14. So they believe that everyone will go to heaven. Now think about that for a moment. Everyone will go to heaven. So you have Hitler and Mao and, well, Castro. How about Stalin? Even the 9-11 terrorist. Remember when the plane struck the World Trade Center on 9-11? It killed both Christians and terrorists. But they all went to heaven. Imagine that. Evidently, the Universalist must have played hooky the day that Hebrews 9.27 was written. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Now, we're going to go to Luke 16, 19-31, and I want to read that to you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you have your little iPhones or whatever, but I want to read uh, a story to you that you're familiar with because I want us to discuss a couple of things here. I'm in Luke chapter 6, teen, in verse 19. It says that there was a certain rich man 
which was clothed in purple, fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died. He was carried by the angels unto Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died, and he was buried. And in hell he lifted up uh, his eyes, being in torments, and he seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in your lifetime you received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus, well, evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are in torment. And besides all this, Between us, between you and there, there is this great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you, they cannot, and neither can they pass to us. That would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that they may testify unto them, lest they also come unto this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses, they have the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one went from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead." Guess what? This is a true story. How do I know? Well, parables are always said. It's a parable. Jesus told a parable. It's not a figure of speech. It's not a simile. I'll give you some of the reasons, though, that it's true. In verse 19, it says, A certain rich man. That means a particular one. Apparently, he was well known. We know that he had a family. The text described his home, his surroundings. It was a specific person. And then there was a beggar. And he had a name. His name was Lazarus. That was a popular name in the first century. Not some made-up name. His diet is described. His medical condition is described. He was not a beggar because he used drugs or was a deadbeat in the community. As a result of his deteriorating health, he died. Angels came and carried him to Abraham's bosom. So here was a real person known among the Jews. Then we read that the rich man died. That's in verse 22. And he was buried. His resting place was hell. Verse 23, his outcome was not because he was rich. 
it was because he could care less for the poor, unfortunate, and mentally unstable. He was conscious. Notice he said he was in torment. And torment, or a form of the word, is used four times in the reading. In verse 24, he cries because he's in torment. In verse 24, he's tormented in this flame. Then in hell, Greek word Hades, refers, uh, hell is described as a tormenting flame. Verse 24. So this ought to end all debate, all doubt, and all denial about the existence of hell. We have a specific man from the census of the city of Jerusalem who dies and he's in hell. And hell is described as a place of fire, flames, torment, anguish. 32 times, Hades or hell refers to fire or flames. Unquenchable fire, everlasting fire, lake of fire. And torment is used four times. And torment has three meanings. First of all, Torment refers to acute pain. It's like a chronic debilitating disease where the pain is so severe that morphine, Demerol, fentanyl would not bring relief. Then torment, as used in the first century, they were familiar with what was known as a rack of torture. That was a type of punishment or torture whereby sharp spikes were used to torment. A body would be stretched out on a bed until those sharp spikes pierced all the way through as the body would begin after hours to shrink and they would experience this slow, excruciating death from the piercing. Then the word Jesus used is fire. Fire that's hot enough to melt metal. Intense heat, the word Jesus used. Now, we can discern some things when a person goes to hell from that reading. Verse 24, he desires comfort. He requested, send Lazarus, that he might just dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. He didn't ask for a glass full, he didn't ask for a bucket. He didn't even ask for a teaspoon. Just the tip of his finger. I'm tormented in this flame. See, hell was not created for you, but hell had to be enlarged for design. By necessity and not design, as we said from Isaiah chapter 5. And Jesus referenced that hell is everlasting fire in Matthew 25, 41. It's not an interim place. It is not purgatory. It's not a place to purify or cleanse from sin. Hell is not an atonement or a covering for sin. It's not a substitute for the cross. Mercy was the first request of the man who went to hell. And yet, the rich man while he was on earth, he had no concern to ask for any mercy while he was alive. Jesus prepared heaven for you, and he awaits your arrival.
And then, number two, he not only desires comfort, he expresses concern. That's in verse 27 and 28. He says, please, I pray, send him to my father's house. He got missionary minded, didn't he? Everyone in hell is going to have this thought one time or another. I hope my kids aren't here. I hope my spouse isn't here. I hope my best friend isn't here. Or maybe the thought will be, you know, at that family reunion, maybe at Christmas, you know, maybe Sue, maybe she'll tell my children about this place. No, she won't. Because she didn't tell me. I mean, I remember the heated arguments. Oh, we had lots of those at the Christmas table about who to vote for. Who ought to be president. Arguments about abortion. Immigration. But I never told a word about hell. How to avoid going there. There was never a discussion of the new birth. There was never a discussion of giving your life to Christ. I'd repent a thousand times over if I could. If someone had just shared with me how to avoid this place, I'd trade every Sunday football game and every Sunday roast dinner. And then number three, he seeks consolation. Verse 30, he says, If one went from the dead, they would repent. Surely my brothers would repent. No, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither would they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. One has risen from the dead. There were reliable witnesses, over 500, who would be qualified to testify in any court. They had Moses. They had the five books of the law. They had the prophets. They had all of the Old Testament except the book of Psalms. So he seeks consolation. This story tells the story before the resurrection of Christ. Everyone who died prior to the resurrection went to a place of waiting. Verse 26, there were two compartments and there was a chasm between them. One was Hades, the other was Abraham's bosom. It was a place of waiting. It was a place of waiting for the Old Testament saints before Jesus ascended. In His burial, Jesus descended into the lower parts and He led all the Old Testament saints to paradise where He told the thief on the cross, I'll be there with you today after His death and before His resurrection. Then, future hell after the second coming is referenced as eternal hell. There are two physical properties on earth that keep us stable mentally. One is light, one is solid. Let me explain. Do you know that even blind people, to a degree, can see light? Now, they can't read, they can't focus, but light gives them a certain measure of balance and stability. I've had a few experiences, not being totally blind, but I've had periods when I just lose my sight. And I want to tell you, there's nothing more 
helpless than to not have a sense of balance and not to have a sense of stability. There's no light in hell. It's a place of outer darkness. It is utterly dark. It's so dark you can cut it with a knife. And the blackness is blinding. It's frightening. It's depressing. It's totally dark. There's not going to be any party going on in hell. It's dark. You can't see. You can't feel. You can't touch. You'll not be able to see, nor will you be able to talk and carry on a conversation. This is hell after the resurrection. And associated with the darkness, there will be screaming and weeping and cursing, gnashing of teeth. In heaven, there will be no sun because the Lamb is the light. Now, deniers in hell, one of the arguments they make, well, God is omnipresent, therefore God will not be in hell. Well, there is a hell, but God's not going to be there because God removes His presence from hell and it's a place of outer darkness. Then the other thing that we need is we need stability or a solid. Mentally, we need to hold on to something. We need stability. There's a fear of falling. And there's no more helpless feeling than to be in darkness and not be able to balance or support yourself. I mean, just turn off all the lights even in your own house that you're familiar with and get it totally dark and then just try to walk across the room. And I'll assure you how fearful that is. Because I've tried. You'll do anything just to find a wall. It's not even where you think it is. You'll want to cry out, help me, very quickly. In Revelation 9, Revelation 11, Revelation 17, Revelation 20, hell is referred to as a bottomless pit. So in hell, you're never really going to touch anything. You'll not have any bearings. You'll never sit, never stand or touch. I mean, in, similarly in some way, it's like being in a state of vertigo. Two properties that keep us mentally stable are going to be missing in hell. And then there's two emotional properties on earth that support us. And those two properties are rest and hope. Rest and hope, they keep us emotionally stable. I don't know about you, but you know, occasionally I get grumpy. And when you get grumpy, you get tired. And guess what? You need a, your pajamas. You need a nap. So when we get tired, we lose it emotionally. You go through a traumatic period or an event. You're exhausted. You need rest. International travel, one of the best ways. Boy, just change of time zones by several hours. Your body is a wreck even if you're in good shape. Rest is good. It's a good healer. Sometimes you just need rest for a few moments. But hell is a place where there is no rest day or night according to Revelation 14 and 11. And then the other thing that we need to be mentally stable is hope. There's no hope in hell. Having hope restores faith that tomorrow will be better. But there's no such hope for tomorrow 
in hell. You know, even the person who commits suicide believes that there's hope on the other side. There's always hope on earth, regardless of how bad things get. But when a person's been in hell 10,000 years, he'll have no fewer days nor one second less to be there. Eternity in hell is best described in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. It begins with, when the Lord is going to be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon them who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Jesus used a word to describe hell. The word that He used was Gehenna. And when Jesus used that word, every Jewish audience knew exactly what He was talking about. Gehenna. To the Jew, the Valley of Hinnon. It was a valley on the south and the west side of Jerusalem that's called Gehenna. It was a valley surrounding the old city. It included Mount Zion. And it merged like a Y at the Kidron Valley, near the southeastern corner of the old city. It was a place of continual fire. It was a place where they burned refuge. And when they went through a drought season, or a, a period of time uh, when there was famine, people would die. And many times they had no resources for burial. They didn't have some GoFundMe that they could uh, call on. And they began burning the bodies of the poor in Guyana. You could smell flesh burning. It was like an open crematory. Now, if you need a reminder of the stench and the sickening smell, you might read about the furnaces and the crematories in Europe to execute Holocaust Jews during World War II. When the Jews came out of Babylon captivity, they learned a practice. The practice was offering their children to the Canaanite god Molech. Two kings did this, Ahab and Manasseh, two of the most wicked kings in the history of Israel. They offered their children, often children of their pagan wives, or maybe a concubine. And they made their children walk through the fire alive. And it burned them alive. And sometimes they used whips to drive them into the fire. And Jeremiah commented upon these worshipers of Baal, uh, of Baal and he said, they filled this place with the blood of innocence. 2 Chronicles 28 and 3, 2 Chronicles 33 and 6. So Jesus used a phrase that every Jewish audience was familiar with, and they understood. No one had to ask for an explanation. He said hell was like Gehenna, 
where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And these young boys and girls, they would be so afraid and in so much pain that they would weep and scream and grind their teeth while being burned alive. So Jesus tried to tell us the best that He could about this place so that we wouldn't go there. Jeremiah 7.31 They built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire which I commanded them not to do. Same story in Jeremiah 19, verses 2-6. through six. Now that blog that I referenced at the beginning, Matthew J. DiStepano, The Absurdity of Hell, the writer states this, It's high time Christians take seriously the charges against this damnable doctrine, the absurdity of hell. It's an affront to the character of God and an absurdity so damaging that I'm surprised that more people aren't walking away from Christianity altogether. Another well-known evangelist that I follow is Keith Giles down in El Paso. He's written a new book. In that book, he represents the views of about 60% of Christians today. The name of the book is Jesus Undefeated, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Hell. It happens to be the number one bestseller on Amazon in August of this year. It's scheduled for new release on November the 9th. I read the preview of it. The Apostle Paul warned, that such a time would come. He said the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They will turn away from the truth unto fables. But watch thou in all things. 2 Timothy 4, 3-6. I want to wrap this up. I want to wrap it up with a ludicrous illustration. Let's suppose you drive home tonight. And you get home and your neighbor's house, I mean, you know, them and they have three small children and a couple of pets. But that house is on fire. What would you do? You'd call 911, wouldn't you? And if safe to do so, I mean, you'd try to rescue anyone inside. Now, what's ludicrous? Well, no one would see their neighbor's house on fire and just pull into the garage, you know, and think, you know, they got smoke detectors. They'll figure it out. Or, you know what? Just about time for the kickoff. I can't miss that. Oh, Game of Thrones. Got to get in there. Or think, well, you know what? Somebody will tell them. Oh, I know what we can do. Let's just pray for them and hope that they see it and get out. I believe in prayer, but the Bible says you have to tell them. Romans ten fourteen. How shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom 
they have not heard. We have to tell them. Your neighbor's house isn't on fire, but your neighbor is if he doesn't know the Lord, according to the Bible. And without Christ, you'll go to a place of fire and brimstone, a place of lasting torment for all eternity. In view of eternity, King David prayed, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Psalms 51 and verse 10. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I know that this is a heavy message. We all have loved ones. We have those that we're concerned about. We know that you died for them. I pray, Lord, that you would purify my heart, that you would create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. I ask that you take away any thoughts, any desires, any feelings, or any, any obsessions from me that do not glorify you. And I know that when my heart is pure, and write that it pleases you, and I want to please you more than anything. And I also know that a pure heart is pleasant to others, because out of it comes words and actions that are uplifting. There's no way that I can have a right heart, Lord, without you making it clean. I ask you to fill me afresh with your love, so that it crowds out anything and everything and all things in me that are unloving. Show me the condition of my heart as I read your word, which reveals the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Help me to keep a close watch over my heart, because I know the heart cannot be trusted. Set my heart ablaze with a passion and with limitless love for you, and every day may I fall more and more in love with you, for you are my God. You said, choose you this day whom you will serve. I choose you with all of my heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat>